Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're happy to introduce you to Mick, founding GP of Lunar Ventures, a deep tech seed stage investor backing technical founders solving problems in big markets. Mick is a CTO and software architect. He has two decades of key roles at startups and multinational leading tech firms. He led software development for embedded mobile, real-time systems, computer graphics, computer vision, and trading infrastructure. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review, and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Mick, welcome to the European VC. Some of our listeners might remember the name of your firm. We'll get there first we are here in Loco from How to Web, from beautiful Bucharest. Why are you here? Tell us. <laughs> Thanks for having me, David. Lunar is a uh, Berlin-based fund. Uh, we're uh, active all across Europe at the pre-seed and seed stage, but we don't have a person on the ground. Everywhere in Europe, we're extremely enthusiastic about tech from Central, Central East. Uh, Bucharest is one of the most interesting hubs in Europe for us, and we're trying to be more active, meet people on the ground, talk to founders, talk to entrepreneurs, talk to investors, and see what people are doing. Why is Bucharest interesting to you? So Bucharest, like many other uh, Central European hubs, has been a academic a powerhouse for decades, really. And we think that there's a huge undertapped talent pool that just is waiting to erupt. And I think Lunar can be part of that story. I think local investors are realizing this. And I think global investors are realizing this, especially post-UI path. It's absolutely on the map for everyone. And it's on the map for Lunar as well. Yeah. How do you think about Bucharest and Romania versus the surrounding countries? Because many think of them as somewhat part of the scene. So I think there's larger nations, there's smaller nations. Obviously, every country has its own character and every country has its own DNA of builders, of academics. It's known that Hungary, for example, is a computer science powerhouse. We've seen some more interesting industrial plays from Poland, from Romania. Poland has a different, maybe better funded venture ecosystem. Yeah. And so, you know, each and every country has its own flavor for us. We're really trying to learn where Lunar fits in, where a deep tech investor, our tastes are a bit more leaning towards the hard tech, yeah. hard science, hard software. And we're just trying to navigate the space and learn what's a fit for us. Yeah, we interviewed Louis and Elat, I guess, six months ago or so. Many who are now a regular listener maybe haven't heard that episode. So give us just the rundown of Lunar Ventures. What do you invest in? How long have you been around? How big is the fund? That kind of thing. Absolutely. So Lunar is a pre-seed and seed fund based in Berlin, Germany, investing all across Europe. We've started the fund with the first launch in 2019, and we've scaled the fund to 40 million for 0 million AUM. Since 2019, since our launch, we've invested into 20 companies, typically a ticket between, let's say, 300K and up to 1 million. So we like to be a lead or a co-lead. We're typically the most technical investor yeah. in those rounds. We syndicate with other investors, primarily in Europe. 
And what we try to bring to the table is really technical expertise. We work with technical founders, scientists, engineers, building hard technology with commercialization challenges, productization challenges, and primarily product market fit challenges, which is where we excel. Our companies that we back are often machine learning companies, horizontal companies, platforms, open source businesses, companies that are democratizing or commercializing hard technologies and addressing often B2B, right? Maybe enterprise software, infrastructure software models. Otherwise, we have done more exotic things, funding marketplaces for pharma. We're looking at material discovery. We're looking at productivity for crypto and DAOs, right? So we're doing all of these things, but our core, you know, bread and butter would be really machine learning, open source, and enterprise software plays. Every time anyone, not as much Louis, but every time you <laughs> and Nilat open your mouth, I'm like, yes, I understand all you're saying. <laughs> It's always amazing. I love the technical expertise and depth that your team has is always staggering to me. Maybe not as much Louis, because Louis is more like, he's what makes the machine work. I think with the two brains, then he's the one who actually has the arms to make the machine work and productivity actually happen. Um, that's how I see the team, at least. Um, I think it's incredibly interesting to see your team and how you're developing and how you're attacking, you know, the world of VC and the complementarity between you. I'd love to ask you if you could just dive a bit more into team composition and why you are as you are and why you think that you work well? Well, Lunar by now on the investment side is eight people. The partnership is four people. Alberto, who joined us very early on, really from day zero, has been with us, just promoted partner. So the way that we think about this, you know, you have engineer guy, which is me, you have science guy, which is Elad, you have product guy, which is Luis, and you have kind of investor execution, legal, finance guy who's Alberto. And this is really how we perceive also our complementarity in the team and how we perceive our value add to the companies, right? So what, what happens, and by now, I mentioned eight people in the investment team, we have a chief engineer, we have an associate who's a physicist, we have a head of research, we have a person working on bio and compute bio, right? So, you know, you, you put a circle around every three people and you get a tiny work group that specializes in something. And this also allows us to dive very, very deep into very exotic topics optical computing, semiconductors, I mentioned compute bio, quantum compute, right? All of these require a lot of depth and we're kind of pulling from the team the specialized backgrounds that are relevant for that kind of other task. In the first episode we did with you guys, we talked a lot about, you know, the story from uh, idea to fund actually existing, you know, that inception story. And now it's kind of cool, you know, last week we were at Tech Barbecue and, and we met one of your, uh, I think it's a recent hire and a, and a junior hire. So I'm really excited to see the team growing and I think it's really cool. And I'd love to ask you, you know, it's been three years roughly, right? The investment team is now eight people. Take us through that development path. Take, take us through, you know, the learnings, the challenges and the victories as, as well as going, of going from, you know, just the partners to having a team. Yeah, I think the journey is really, you know, it's hand in hand, the uh, fundraising story, the investment story and the team story, right? So when we just started, we were three guys basically moving from Tel Aviv to Berlin, discovering basically the challenges of VC, not only in Berlin and Germany, but really in Europe and really building our thesis. So the first two, three years into 2019 were really market exploration, market yeah. discovery, and really just building the case. As we were getting more 
let's call it validation from both VCs, LPs, and ultimately founders, we realized that what we need to drive the machine was more VC expertise, bringing in Alberto. We gradually realized that what we need is more specialized experience because where our ambition lies is not being only a software investor, but really being a deep tech investor. And for us, a deep tech investor means that we're able to be, you know, this beacon for science entrepreneurs anywhere in Europe. And no matter if you're doing a material discovery, smart materials, compute bio, nano, you know, optical computing, Luna will be able to dive deep, be a valuable partner that knows what you're talking about, knows where your challenges lie, knows how to help you with those challenges, right? And it's, that requires a very specialized uh, team. And so, you know, at any step of the way, what we've put in, in front of us was how do we make ourselves a more competent, a more complementary, and a more you know, well-rounded team, right? And so kind of with time and also with obviously in this business with AUM and our ability to hire and our ability to manage a team um, and into our last close August last year, we've actually managed to scale the team really from four, practically two X into eight people covering all of those bases. I'd love to ask, every time we talk science, I end up wanting to also talk TTO. And I just want to hear your, your views on the tech transfer system in Europe. And when you do science, based projects, right? Do you then work with the universities or are they not on your radar? That's typically not where you get the deal flow from. So the truth of the matter is that Lunar looks for great entrepreneurs who happen to be great scientists and not vice versa. Uh -huh. As you probably may know, uh, universities are not built to create great entrepreneurs, right? You might have great entrepreneurs in university and sometimes those people finish their PhDs, sometimes they don't finish their PhDs. But for us, obviously, it's not so much about whether or not you have a PhD, but rather your technical competence, your ambition, and really your grit as a founder, as an entrepreneur, right? And sometimes it takes a person, you know, three, five, seven years getting out of academia uh, into industry and, and becoming a proficient, you know, let's call it self-motivated founder. Yeah. But sometimes that's kind of, people get that from where they go from their home. So, we come in, we try to evaluate that, you know, hand in hand, both the uh, technical competencies and the entrepreneurial competencies. And once we figure that there's a good fit for us and, and for the market, obviously, then we can move forward. I had a super cool chat with both Benjamin from your team, right? That's his name, Benjamin? Benjamin. And yourself yesterday about decentralized science. And I don't want to talk about decentralized science, but I want to give you the time to talk a little bit about the deals that you've been making at Lunar. Give us a quick rundown. If you were calling an LP, giving an update, what would be that update like? As I mentioned, we've made uh, 20 investments uh, over the past three years, practically. Um, and we have uh, still a way to go with this fund. Our companies uh, around, for example, open source machine learning include uh, DeepSet, who's just recently announced a round uh, led by GV, Google Ventures previously. So that's a Series A. Uh, DeepSet is building basically open source NLP. and is basically building the standard haystack for every developer out there building their um, NLP pipelines. The company is doing exceptionally well and, and we're you know, incredibly happy with their progress. We led the round very early 2020 with um, Max Clausen at System One. And since uh, I think they've basically been blazing through the gate, uh, one of our best teams. We've backed Zama early on. Zama is a Paris-based homomorphic encryption company. Basically, it's a private computation, private collaboration over data based on new invention uh, called fully homomorphic encryption. That's, I think, one of the pillars of a new secure private internet. Basically, 
putting security first, both for uh, data collaboration, for machine learning collaboration, and so forth. Zama has also raised significant up round and is doing incredibly well. Let me interrupt um, you there, because it yeah. took me some time to understand Zama. Yeah. <laughs> Could you explain what you mean? Like, <laughs> make, it, make it in layman terms. Yeah, absolutely. So... Because it's really when, cool, by the way. That's why when I'm asking. You, when you typically think about uh, cryptography, you typically think about sealed envelopes. It's me giving you just information that nobody else can eavesdrop. Yeah. And that's what we think about peer-to-peer -peer cryptography. The problem is if I'm now serving, for example, fraud detection, for example, any other machine learning service, and you're a company that has maybe secure information, maybe in the medical space, maybe in another space, then you need to give me your data for me to, you know, operate on. So what homomorphic encryption, fully homomorphic encryption allows basically is for me to operate on completely encrypted data, data that I don't see, so I can operate on data that is still opaque to me, yeah. whereas you can't see my models, right? So you hand over the data in an encrypted form, I operate on it in encrypted form, I return inference results, yeah. which are encrypted as well, and then you can see the model that I'm using, and I can see the data that you're using, but we're still able to collaborate, right? And that unlocks a huge space of, you know, untapped opportunities, uh, whether it's medical space, whether it's business confidential, whether it's any other financial confidentiality and yeah. so on, for all of the silo data that's out there and that nobody can tap into just because of privacy, security, yeah. regulation, and so on. So I can now run, like, as an example, AI and ML models are on very sensitive medical records, as an example. Exactly. While still being compliant with, with GDPR and, exactly. so, and so on. Very cool. So I have a question. We always end our episodes with a quickfire round that asks you the question, which sector do you love that no one else really seems interested in? That is almost like the epitome of Lunar. You love stuff that other people don't really love because it's too complex. I would ask you the opposite question. What sector do you love that everyone else also loves? And for that reason, you sometimes actually find yourself trying to get into deals that others are also trying to. <laughs> because I guess that's not in many of them. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that speaking as an engineer, I guess here, the one thing that's like my personal flavor and that's like more common taste would be developer tooling, yeah. cloud infrastructure, uh, deployment technologies, where we're seeing a lot of very, very cool people building a lot of very, very cool shit. And open source playbooks, I think, are doing marvelously in that space. And that's things that we don't think that are necessarily so much of the secret sauce that maybe other investments that we do rely on, but it's really very focused builders with a lot of grit, with a lot of intuition, building into a space that we think is, you know, just right for those kinds of solutions. Yeah. We should have maybe asked this question earlier when you said that we want to be a deep tech fund, not just a software fund. There are many different definitions of deep tech. One of them, that I think is kind of super simple is, I can't remember IQ. which fund, maybe David, it's IQ, it's IQ. That, that if you bring together a bunch of great yeah, people, I, then they would not be able to recreate what yeah, you're really. doing in less than two years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that, that. And if the best people, you bring them together, they can build it in two years with all the resources that they could really put together, then it's deep tech. How do you define it? That's an interesting definition, but, but before touching on that one, I think for us internally in Luna, it's the perception of risk for the founders, the company, and the perception of de-risking as an investor, primarily 
Is there concrete risk in the technology? Is there concrete risk in the science? Or to put in other words, can the company fail on science? Can the yeah. company fail on tech? Yeah. And what we see is that most historically you think about, you know, rocket internet businesses and marketplace yeah. businesses. Those companies yeah. post Amazon, post AWS, can no longer fail on tech, right? Because yeah. it's already provided for. Yeah. But they do fail on business. And for deep tech companies, we perceive that a material point of risk is still the technology, yeah. is still the science. That's part of where the funding goes to. And of course, yeah. part of the funding goes to commercializing and solving critical product yeah. market fit challenges. Yeah. That's our perception. In terms of the timelines, if someone spent the past three years solving a very, very hard scientific or technical challenge, it's much, much easier for someone else to come later and say, ah, we thought that was impossible, but obviously it's possible. This is how it's done. Let's just try to do it ourselves. It becomes much, much easier. Yeah. So despite people having actually, you know, scaled those walls for two years, the second team, having seen the path up the hill, yeah. actually has a much easier time. Yeah. Despite the task not necessarily being easier, the knowledge of someone having done that changes the, yeah, the perception the of it. Yeah. I feel like we should do an extended quick fire because I feel like, not really seriously, I feel like Andreas said it and I like that a lot about the Lunar guys, you know. Last time I met with Benjamin, I found myself having like a one hour long conversation with him just because it's so cool the, the, the kind of tech you guys are looking at. So I think, I think we should do a quick fire round that's a bit extended. And the quick fire round is how we end our episodes. We ask quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Let's do it. First question, what was the last book or movie that you watched or read that you'd like to share with our audience and why? Yeah, I'm reading a book called Otherlands now. Otherlands basically tells the story of the history of the planet through the various ages, right? The Ice Age and so on, on a planetary scale. And one of the interesting things that it shows is how ecosystems evolve. You see an animal nowadays or you see a plant nowadays and you have absolutely no perception on the face of it of the history, the million year long history yeah that it took to get to you in that form. But it evolved in a completely different scenario. It evolved in a completely different era. It evolved vis-a-vis -vis completely different obstacles, forces, predators, and so on. And what you're seeing now, even if the predators are completely extinct, you're seeing the result of that ecosystem. And that's true for us as well. You're seeing now software. Yeah. For example, Microsoft evolved vis-a-vis -vis completely different market forces. And now you're seeing a completely, let's say, mature, as it were, beast. But the origins of it lie in the deep, yeah. deep past. Yeah. So when David said it extended quickfire, that I'm realizing now that that means that we will just ask you weird-ass questions that we'll then force you to answer. Because, <laughs> I, have, I have all day. Because we, we did I have all day, guys. Mick knows that I've been asking weird questions all day. And all the time I've been, I've been starting them with... You should have started Mick. recording earlier. <laughs> yeah. Mick, I have a question. <laughs> so, now, now I have a question, which is, what do you think is the most disruptive, fundamental technology development that's going on right now that VC is backing? I have a bit of a weird answer to this because, you know, it's my perception and it's Lunar's perception that algorithms are still very early to the scene and software is still eating the world, right? Software is still taking bites and still digesting the world and it's still only tip of the iceberg. When we think about machine learning and we think about artificial intelligence, it's like this triangle. It's algorithms and it's data and it's compute. And if you look at the past 
20, 30, even 40 years, what you see is continuously researchers going, ah, neural networks, I remember that from the 70s. It never worked. <laughs> then they go, well, it never worked because we never had Toyota was the first one to put in a million images, if I remember correctly, way back when this was 90s or something. And then they went, well, this is great, but we don't have compute. When I built a hedge fund 10 years ago, I had to build my own server farm because AWS was new, it was very hard to scale. Now, scaling 1,000 CPUs, 10,000 CPUs, well, you push a button, right? By now, you have the data, you have the uh, compute, now you're doing multi-layered, very, very deep models, and you're going back full circle. Now you have a trillion parameters, 10 trillion parameters. At some point, you kind of asymptote, then you go back to data, then you go back to compute, and so on and so forth. So the answer is all of these. The answer is you need to kind of continuously disrupt each and every one. At every point in time, you continue basically breaking another glass ceiling into the next stage of humanity, as it were. <laughs> I love that. Then I have a follow-up question, because obviously we're diving into the rabbit hole of AI and all this. Do you think that we will have AI being only a force of good for humanity? Or are we now starting to tread into the land where we need to be very careful with what we're developing. Yeah, I mean, it, we've, we always have to tread lightly. It's like this Oppenheimer moment. No, like every tool that we develop is a tool and every tool at the right hands is for good and at the wrong hands is for whatever bad means. Yeah. And it's only in the eye of the beholder. I think we need to be accountable. I think that in that regard, you know, Europe develops software differently than the US. I think China, Japan, every country has, you know, its ethos of what technology is. And I think we always have to be super mindful. And it's a bit abstract to say we need to be ethical about our decisions, but we need to be accountable. We need to say, if this is going to impact humanity, can we see the end game of how this impacts humanity? At least be accountable to that. And, you know, internally for us, there's stuff that we like more, there's stuff that we like less. Those kinds of technologies will go, we go, this is perhaps an incredible business, but we don't necessarily want to be the people backing that business. Despite that being perhaps a, a great opportunity to make money, there's many ways to make money. There's journeys you may not really want to be part of. I had a great drunken conversation with Ramon from Acrobat Adventures about exactly that. They're tech guys. So I, I almost want to say that Acrobat has one super techie guy. You guys are just a full team of them, it feels like. <laughs> it's mind-boggling to me that, that we have right now VCs at a place where when you are frontier, you need to think about the ethical decisions of AI because you're funding them, right? And you're looking at businesses and saying, yeah, I don't think that this team knows where they're headed with this or doesn't seem like they have a thought <laughs> for, for what this might be misused for. Are you seeing that as well? Listen, we don't have a crystal ball, right? And we definitely don't know better than the founders the future of their own company. But ultimately, we do need to have opinions. As investors, we need to be opinionated about what we think will work, why we think it will work, why we think it might fail, where we think we could help, right? So where our opinions uh, kind of fit in is when we internally, and in our investment committee, we often have these discussions, where we internally feel that we're not the right partner for that journey, for various reasons, ethical, non-ethical, then, you know, whether we're right or wrong, and our anti-portfolio could be filled with unicorns, many funds have anti-portfolio filled with unicorns, right? It's fine. 
but it's more about you have to make a bet based on conviction, positive or negative, and you know, follow that conviction. I think that's kind of how we try to operate as a fund. Coming back to the quick fire round, the second standard question we always ask is what are your top tips for emerging managers across Europe that are now fundraising? I think if I could go back in time, I think that the one thing that really moved the needle for our raise and for our fund building yeah. was actually deploying, was actually backing companies and teams that we believed in actually seeing traction there, right? So it's, it's great to have a phenomenal deck and it's great to have amazing intros, but ultimately what you need to do as a manager is have an opinion, follow through with that opinion, and honestly, it doesn't matter if you write a million bucks as a check or 10,000 bucks as a check. Ultimately, what you need to do is really just build a portfolio. Yeah. And while there's a lot of, you know, LP diligence questions, which are like, yes, you can get access with 10,000 bucks. Can you get access with a, a million? And yes, your previous fund was a pre-seed fund. Now you're doing a series A. Yeah. Can you still get access and so forth? Yeah. Those are legitimate questions. Ultimately, what you need is to show your tastes, I think, what your personal idea of a good company looks like exactly. and convince LPs that those are actually good companies. And I think that that's the job. And I think that that's actually what matters for managers and Actually, that's what makes managers better, right? It's really just continuously checking their, I've mentioned, uh, you know, unicorns in your entire portfolio. The way you get better is by making mistakes and by realizing that there are mistakes. And if you never take a bet, then you know, how do you learn from your mistakes either? Final question of the quick fire round. What's the most counterintuitive learning you've had since you've started the lunar journey? My intuition as a builder and as an engineer was always if you build something good, people will want it. But that's bullshit. That's the first thing I don't teach, but talk to with the founders that I back. Nobody cares if it's good or if it's baked good, or as you know, software uh, people I like to say, if it's elegant, who cares if it's elegant? People either want it or not. And I think it's easy to forget that we're as fund builders, as investors are in the exact same position. Your fund doesn't matter if it's an elegant fund. It matters if it's serving someone, if it's needed, and if it's needed primarily on the entrepreneur's side, on the funder's side, but also on the investor side, on the LP side. And the uh, realization that you're filling a, a spot in this double-sided market where LPs want to need to deploy into you and that founders want to raise from you, that realization is a product market fit. And you talk to Elad and Louis, they said the exact same thing, I assume. It's a product market fit uh, question that as a builder, you have to acknowledge. And as an investor, you don't necessarily face. I think that the other point is, and I think that that's a really important realization, not so much counterintuitive, but the non-trivial realization is that every single type of LP, we look for a different type of fund. And you may find yourself building an amazing fund that doesn't at all fit funds yeah. of funds. And you may find yourself building an amazing fund that doesn't fit high net worth individuals or angels. And each and every one of those profiles has a flavor, has a taste, and has the kind of product that they actually need, yeah. regardless of how sexy or good it is, or elegant, and so on. We've never had that reply before. That's very interesting. Mick, thanks a million. We're looking forward to going dining with you uh, in a couple of hours. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. What I think is going to be the Great Gatsby dinner of uh, <laughs> Bucharest. <laughs> thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at the europeanvc.com. 
Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.